0: Hello and welcome to the Odd Collective Radio Show, Dennis Val from Sydney band Love Child. How you doing, Dan? Good mate, how are you? Uh oh, getting there slowly but surely up here on the Clarence River. Uh, looking at an industry that hopefully will come back for people like you and I. Yeah, well, we can only hope. Yeah, mate, it's sort of been pretty ugly out there, but you know, we're resilient, us Sagittarians, and the music industry tends to be. Yeah,
1: it's been a
0: long. Yeah, you know, it's, it's getting on a two years, but. Yeah, it is. Um, geez, the last one we both did was. The 11th of April, I gather.
1: Yeah, and that was you know, in between lockdown 37 to lockdown 482, you know. So, uh, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a brief period of playing. That was about it, you
0: know. Yeah, well, at least we got one in, mate.
1: Yeah, I think the band got two or three in, and uh, then we had to you know, lose some really good paying gigs during the COVID period.
0: Oh, well, I, I hope it's been a productive period for you, Dennis. It's...
1: It has for my personal growth and my personal playing, but it hasn't been for the band because, you know, we can't even see each
0: other. Yeah, well, you know, you're a band. Um, when you get back together, things tend to, you know, you'll finish off the conversation you finished at last rehearsal.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's just that we've got a whole bunch of stuff we actually recorded. It's just sitting, sitting at Phil Riggas' studio. Yeah. You uh, and it,
0: you know? Yeah. Well, hey, me of all people knows about the inability to get records finished. Yes,
1: that's been. Um, I, I suppose. I suppose it would be pointless releasing it during COVID anyway, because everyone's got their own little dramas and not too interested in anything but the football or the Queensland State
0: Premier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, glad it. Um, Anastasia Pallet Jack. What a name is it. Yeah, it's actually like watching the old Joe Bielke-Peterson-era Queensland. It's actually quite amusing watching history repeat itself. Yeah,
1: I just just find the uh, total support that the NRL has had through this whole period disgusting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, that's Australia. If we could find a way of betting on rock and roll, we'd be all set.
1: maybe we should take
0: a football to the gigs. Yeah, well, maybe that'll work. But, you know, at least your love child's still getting airplay. Um, You know, I've noticed that one of the videos our friend Jonesy from Australian Radio Indy did for you has clocked up a few thousand now. So, you know, things are still ticking away for you. You're getting airplay in the UK that I know of. And of all places... Murphy's Borough, North Carolina.
1: Yeah,
0: right. I didn't know that. But, well, we do get a lot of um airplay in that Southern Belt region. So um, I'd like to go to borough, won't I? Yeah, mate. Well, WHER radio there has linked in with our mate Jonesy again. Um, uh, is
1: that, is that Tim, Timothy Flanagan? Yeah,
0: Timothy Flanagan. Oh, um, uh, yeah. You know, they're, they're doing some good things there. They're playing more Australian independent rock than half the radio stations in Australia do. So, you know, the, the bottom line is you're getting it out there still.
1: It seems to be quite tuned into the um, Australian sound, which is, um, I suppose, an Australian sound these days is probably getting closer to what the, um, you know, the uh, vintage American sound was in the 70s and 80s.
0: Yeah, well, it's, you know, those influences are definitely starting to shine again. Um, for whatever reason, I think it's probably because it was played by real people.
1: Yeah, well, also a lot of the bands that I'm into, the American sounding bands, have, have grown up listening to people like Ernest Reading. I mean, you look at the Black Crows. and everybody thinks they're just a straight Ed Stones rock band, but they've got so many, you know, black Motown soul soulful influences, which is um something that uh, I think the whole band. Actually, quite appreciates. You know, I, I know I love all the old stacks, the Motown stacks, and all that sort of stuff, because um, that was a great period of music. And uh, yeah, well, Muscle Shoals, <laughs> Muscle Shoals is where are from.
0: As you well know, I've delved back into the seventies for my for the Odd Collective album, and you know, you're all over the next single out, which is "Move On Up," uh, the old Curtis Mayfield song, and you know, the for all intents and purposes. That is not a straight-ahead rock and roll song. And, you know, anybody who thought that I was a straight-ahead rocker has got another thing coming when they hear that. And may I say that your guitar work on that is sublime, mate. Oh, thanks, mate. It actually takes that song to another place.
1: What's well, funny because um, um, I don't think a lot of people know who Curtis Maple Leaf is, but um, once I got into Hendrix as a teenager... He cited Curtis Mayfield as a huge influence, so I started um, going backwards and discovering that that funky sort of soulful guitar playing, which, um, which I'm glad I did. You know? Yeah,
0: well, um, I realised it many years ago that um, Hendrix's rhythmic chop, funky chops, were cloned off of Curtis.
1: Yeah, and, but, and Steve Cropper too,
0: you know. Yeah, you know, um... Hendrix was, you know, influenced by even Terry Kath. Well,
1: it's funny, you're right, I've read that. It's funny because uh, as an amazing lead guitarist as Hendrix was, I fell in love with his rhythm playing.
0: Yeah, well, they were the chops that really impressed me too.
1: Yeah, same with Eddie Van Halen. I I, I learnt more of his rhythms than um, than, uh, his soloing because, I don't know, I just dug it. I can't explain why.
0: Well, I, th- I think with Eddie, his solos actually became very predictable.
1: Yeah, he, he backed himself into a corner, which uh was too hard to get out of. Um, the two, yeah, you know, everyone thinks of him as a two-handed tapping guy, and, and he's bloody brilliant, you know. It's, you know, he's, he's just his rhythm playing, so rock solid and syncopated. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah, it was, and yeah, a lot of people don't get that. They all just see that flashy guitar, flashy lead stuff going on, and yeah, what really built Hendrix?
1: I like it all, but I, yeah, I just enjoy Keith Richards sitting in a groove, especially in his early days.
0: Yeah, is, oh, well, anything that someone sits in a groove with a Telecaster, they won me.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So I, I suppose we all see music differently. You know.
0: Yeah, so um, what actually influenced you Australian music-wise?
1: Probably Borage at the start.
0: KB, Uh, yeah, I can get that. In fact, I I see that. Hmm. I do. Um, Now that you've mentioned it and having worked for KB for quite a while with Big Wayne Hodson for Marina Productions, Uh, me and him did KB for a while and... Yeah, you're right. And I do see his influence in some of the stuff you do.
1: Yeah, well, because I was sort of getting into that. I was introduced to Jeff Beck and Robin Trowell by a few cousins of mine who were older than me. And um, they were also talking about watching Boric. So I remember um, just being attracted to Stratocaster players right from the start. Um, And so, you know, obviously Mossing would have to be um, the next one after Kevin Boric because... um, he had the added bonus of having the most beautiful voice ever, you know, he's got the best voices in Australia.
0: Oh, without uh, a doubt, but his guitar voicing as well is well, just.
1: I think he, he, he played, I know it's hard, hard to explain, but he played like a vocals that I sort of attribute that to him being a singer and hearing a song as a melody as opposed to shredding time, you
0: know? Yeah, um, yeah. And I
1: think, I think he's proved that. And I think Kevin was probably very similar didn't seem quite as as uh soulful as, as, as Ian did. But nonetheless, um he had a different vocal quality in his guitar playing than Ian. He's a bit more aggressive and Ian's a bit more subtle. But so I think those two guys as far as Australian players, I never got into too much else Australian. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why, I just I was never attracted to and with all due respect, I was never attracted to the A C D C or Rose Tadoo thing, I just don't get it to um too straight ahead for me, yeah, um with all due respect, those guys are great and oh well oh, as
0: far as promoting australian rock and roll the world over, you know rose tattoo and a c d c are the pinnacle we need to attach to ourselves if we get there
1: yes um yeah, so it's, it's, I suppose for some reason, just the sound of the Stratocast was always just one the
0: other, yeah, well. I can get that too, but with me it's always been telecasting.
1: Yeah, yeah, tellies. Tellies are great. I use tellies for a couple of songs and I really enjoy it. It's just normally um total bag, but it's, it's just a style that I try to, just to colour my, vo- um, my guitar playing in a bit with something different.
0: Well, I've actually picked up a split coil telly that when you split, it uh, sounds so much like a normal telly, but unsplit. It takes on a Les Pauli type sound.
1: Yeah, I've got. I've done something similar to my, my les- Tellies, but basically, I play a lot of slide on my Tellies. Yeah. So I go to, I go to the humbucker slide playing just give it that real wet, dripping, sort of fat sound that, that, that a, running a slide on a guitar deserves. Single calls and slides don't quite do it for me.
0: Yeah, I've I'm actually been. Whacking around with my Esquire of late and I pulled out a glass bottle last night and thought, ooh, that sounds unique. It, didn't, well, having, it sort of didn't sound right, but it did.
1: Having said that, I uh, recorded at Phil studio. It's a new song called Soul Down the River, which um, I decided to play Les Paul in. Yeah. And uh, it recorded really well. I listened to it, it still sounds like a stretch. So, so, obviously, the Les Paul that I have some very vintage pickups, which are low output anyway. And I suppose the way I play, yeah, you have a signature way of playing it. Well,
0: you, you can have of. any, I've seen it then. You you have, well, I've heard it. You have any type of guitar in your hands and it sounds like Dennis Val. Oh, thanks, mate. Well,
1: that's quite a compliment, actually, because I think it's even striper as a guitar player.
0: You know? Yeah, so, well, you. you know, I could hear you if I was walking past a pub and didn't know who the band was and you were in it i could walk past that pub and go that's dennis val it <laughs> would
1: be obvious by the lack of audience too. So.
0: <laughs> oh i don't know about that i've been at a few of your love child shows out in the western suburbs that maybe could have had a few more but you know we were in the middle of the first start of covid out at Wetherall park there and you know, you still pulled 150 on a lame Saturday night to a pub that not many people actually go to?
1: Yeah, yeah it's okay. I'm only kidding. We're okay.
0: Yeah, well, you know, um, just like any Australian rock band, the heartland of rock really has not been in the inner city of Sydney.
1: No, and it used to be places like Newcastle and Long I and mean, I'm not sure that they, uh, they do follow rock music anymore.
0: Uh, there's still a significant amount out in the western suburbs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it'd be hard to see a band like the Screaming Jets breaking through these days, you know. And um, they, they, were, they were so big in Newcastle and Sydney at one stage, and they still are. They still put crowds, but I mean,
0: they sell out—literally sell out—every time they play Newcastle.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't see them coming out now, like no. them even chisel and being acknowledged. By, no, because by um, those days of good systems have gone; vanished.
0: But still, a good song, whether it's rock or not, if you can get airplay with it, it'll still get you over that line.
1: If you can get airplay,
0: yeah, if you can, and you know, in that respect, it real the industry hasn't changed. It's still a lucky dip as to who gets picked up. It's still political, with major stations as you well know um yeah. you've only got to piss one person off that's got anything to do with the radio station and whether your materials commercially viable and would sell you've only you've pissed one person off and that tends to flow through although
1: that's been uh, my stumbling block from the
0: beginning you know yeah well you're a Sagittarian you've got a mouth just like me
1: uh, yeah,
0: you know, it, it, it's, it's, yeah. And you, know, uh, we're, we're, you call a spade a spade, and the person we are alluding to now needed a spade calling a spade as far as I'm concerned. Uh,
1: yeah, it's just, yeah, I don't even want to go there. It's just him having a personality clash with me because, uh, because of a girl. So uh, I think i find that unprofessional.
0: Well, it's beyond changed, unprofessional. I mean, <laughs>
1: And Um, I won't won't go there because there'd probably be a court case against me if I brought his name
0: up. uh... Well, we don't need to bring names up. He could hear this and he'd know who we were talking about, but because we (laughs) haven't mentioned his name, he can't do a damn thing.
1: Yeah,
0: it doesn't matter. No, well, you know, it's just the shape of how things are and always have been in this country. And um, strangely enough, people like Russell Morris have forced mainstream radio into playing them
1: it's funny you bought his name but i did a gig with him uh, probably two years ago now yeah and uh he was one of the sweetest musicians i've ever met he was oh. such an exciting fella he made sure i got looked after it got fed got my sound check and and he got my cd and he listened to it and we talked about it and i thought he doesn't have to do that
0: no he doesn't like- he, he is probably the most gentle man in rock and roll, and he's so real. the real thing. Yeah, he is. He is the real McCoy. And like I say, the strength of the blues album he first came out with basically got onto every community radio station in the country and forced mainstream into playing him.
1: It's funny. I'll tell you a quick story about that. I did the gig with him. I said, Russell, are there any songs you don't want me to play? He goes, do what you want, mate. It's all good, you know? And so um, I looked at the, the, the age of the crowd. So I pulled out my old ones here. And um, one of them was All Over Now, Baby Blue by, by Graham Bonnet, which is Bob Dylan song.
0: Yeah. And,
1: and it went off, you know? And, and, and Russell was watching me and he came on stage and about third song in. He said, Oh, here's a song that uh, I recorded before Graham Bonnet. And it was never a hit until Graham did it. And he did the exact same song. <laughs> And I just thought it's time for me to leave before, he, but he, he probably wouldn't have said anything. He's quite sweet, but I just thought it was. I didn't even know Russell had recorded that as his first single.
0: Yeah, I did, but like you, like he said, you know, um, it was only a matter of months later that Graham Bonnet came out with it. And uh, I'll tell you
1: what, Russell sang it in, in the original key. That Graham sang it in. And it, it was—he got the notes effortlessly. And I thought
0: you can't be joking, you know? Oh uh, well, Graham Bonnet can't hit those notes anymore. Yeah, well, I
1: can't. I, I, I knocked down about a minor first, you know, just to yeah. get high
0: notes. Well, that's, that's hey, we always piece. tune to the odd collective tunes to E flat. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, but um, anyway, so um, that's my Russell Morris story.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's one of them stories that you can take for life that you did that (laughs) and actually played one of the songs he was going to play and probably didn't know it.
1: That's right. Just so I didn't do the real thing.
0: (laughs) Wow. You'd have done it it justice, that's for certain. Yeah, oh,
1: thank you, mate. Doing the
0: best I can. Well, you know, for someone who wasn't doing the amount of solo work you were doing pre-COVID only years beforehand you know your voice your acoustic playing has come along um, in leaps and bounds and it tends to like when you've done that the amount of times you have your performance live with the band becomes another step up yeah I'll, I'll,
1: I'll, I'll, oh, thanks for that i have to admit Playing acoustic guitar was so cha- say so daunting about five or six years ago when I first started doing it, and uh, it could be it can be a really lonely gig, but it can also be one of the most satisfying gigs. Sometimes you know, it's um, and I was doing seven seven gigs a week, so I was really pushing my voice and.
0: Yeah, you know, well, your it. chops, your guitar chops, really came along during that yeah, period, and so. um, I'm not sure whether you even noticed the improvement yourself, but. You know, to the discernible ear, um, you know your playing has improved in that span. Where you now sit up with the best session players in the land, and I don't care who tries to tell me any different. You know, um, you can walk in and pull off um, things like Frank Zappa's "Dirty Love" and the Spencer Davis Band's Slash Chicago's "I'm a Man." and not even remember that you've played the Bastards.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for sending me the demos, because I wasn't sure I played those
0: songs. <laughs> I remember going in to do Dirty Love, for, uh, your, your single,
1: and, um, and that, that was quite a challenge. Anything Franks, even though it's blues number, anything Franks is quite hard. And, yeah, uh, it was.
0: was uh, that came about from Phil, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember him telling me. And, um, I was never, I'm ever going to... If I was going to do any zapper, it was always going to be Dancing Fool. Oh, yeah,
1: I love that. It. Such a great
0: song. So we're actually going to do that live, but um, Dirty Love is just... yeah. It is it is what it is. And again, your guitar playing on it was like, fuck me, you didn't learn that. But you sure yeah. as hell fucking played it. Like, oh,
1: thanks, man. It was funny because... Bill said to me, um, do you want to take a solo? I said, yeah, I said, just set me up with a sound because I, I just plugged straight into his desk. And I said, yeah, that'll do. I said, look, just run it because there's a couple of chord changes in here that I'm not sure where they are. And I remember playing it. And I was talking to him. I was like, "Um, where's that E chord coming? You know, where's this? Because it's not, not a standard 12-bar blues. No nah. he was yelling it out to me. And then I said, oh, right, let's, let's do a take. And he goes, no, that's the one.
0: Said, no. <laughs> He'd already done it.
1: And I listened to it and I went, I'll probably now that I know where the changes are I'll probably make a mess of it so just leave it and then he said to me do you want to do a Spencer Davis song so I'd forgotten that I did that because that was done in the spur of the moment and then you sent me a recording and I went
0: oh yeah right I remember that (laughs) yeah yeah. Um, hell you know we've Phil Rigger is for mine a fucking genius yeah you know I never ever thought I'd pull off i'm a man i never ever thought i'd do it in fact i wanted to do chicago's saturday in the park or make me smile
1: yeah right great songs
0: and phil actually said let's do spencer davis it'll real i think you can do this so yeah. we, we actually just went ahead i learned it and Hopped in that vocal booth with your guitar ringing in my ears and thought, shit, this is good. I hope <laughs> I can pull it off.
1: Well, you did. Plus, Phil's very patient too, and uh, he's great to work with. You spend, like, three hours of the session hearing his his, uh, his uh, jokes and his his history, and then you spend about 15 minutes playing.
0: Oh, yeah, oh, that's what makes it so enjoyable when you do actually get into playing.
1: Yeah, he was telling me... He's telling me all these stories, and I said, thanks for all that, Phil, I don't have to buy your
0: book now, Because why? I said, because I know everything about you. Yeah, well, uh, it's going to be an interesting book, I Climbed Mount
1: Druitt. (laughs) Is that what it's called?
0: Yeah, I Climbed Mount Druitt.
1: That's great.
0: Yeah. That's great. Yeah, well, we we both know what it's like when you get three Sagittarians in a room. Yeah. It can be rather hilarious. Sure is, <laughs> yeah. It, it can be, and I'd really yeah. like to be there next time you do a love child session with Phil.
1: Yeah, well, uh, like all the work's been done. It's just a matter of um sorting out the BVs stuff like that, and there's a couple of things that um I've had time to listen to it and want to change some of the, l- the lyrical content. Yeah, um, you know um which is good actually because it would have gone out the way it was done and then cause a couple of things still changed and I thought oh yeah whatever and then I I, I thought about no I wanted it to be the way it was before so just minor things um, solo down the river has got this huge you know, three minute guitar atro solo in it which I want to shorten like 45 seconds or something um, but um, just, just little stuff like that you know and I uh, yeah. So we'll see what happens.
0: So, um, you did do some recording down in Melbourne with a big name, uh, fairly recently, just before COVID sort yeah. of whacked us all into oblivion.
1: Yeah.
0: How, how, um, how was that working with him?
1: Uh, can I say his name? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mark Opens. Um, uh, oh, yeah, it was, um, wasn't as pleasant as I thought it was going to be. Um, yeah, well, engineer, that,
0: that's engineer, allowable, you know. Um,
1: the engineer was fantastic.
0: Yeah, you um, throw the dice on a producer. Um, yeah, you literally throw the dice on a producer with a name and sometimes they don't have the ability to get the best out of certain act. And yeah, their think attitude a, as well, I think it a, if it's it um, holier than thou.
1: We disagreed from the first hour.
0: Um, yeah.
1: And it was, I felt it was purely more mind games than actually being productive. I didn't yeah. know what he was trying to get out of the band or what, his recording technique. Um, and he'd done absolutely no homework on the songs that I'd sent him.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then he blamed me. So <clears throat> I, was, I was the client, so I wasn't going to take the blame. And I, I let it be known immediately. And then he backed right down for some reason, I challenged him all the way and for some reason he told the engineer how much he liked me and I thought I thought he couldn't stand me. He, goes, no, he just no, like, <laughs> he just likes the way you, you're backing yourself up. Anyway, he was, um, the engineer and I became pretty close, Colin Wynn, great guy. Yep. And Colin could sit the at attention and he goes, mate, just uh, come back, I'll give you a couple of days free in the studio and we'll just tidy everything up. So I essentially reversed 90% of Mark's work and unfortunately, you yeah, know, Mark had, songs down about two minutes, 20 seconds, and I was like, mate, you, you're editing shit out of the song that needs to be there. You're editing a song down to nothing. It's not a Ramone song, you
0: know? Yeah, well, you know? it'd be like taking um, Bohemian Rhapsody back to a minute and 36.
1: Yeah, it was like that. So um, so half of me agreed with what he did, because some of my songs were epic, like they were in four and a half, five, six-minute mark. And that was cool. I was glad that he stripped him down, and I'm glad that he did that because I had songs that I'd passed left over from songs that could become these new songs, you know? Yeah. Um, um, so I just went back to the studio and just sort of undid as much as I could.
0: So you basically went back in and reproduced it all, bar 10%. Yeah, pretty
1: much. The other 10% percent i got, I, I, there was no files. The songs were too short to actually bring the other stuff in. So... In a regard, I, I learnt learned a lot about creating a pop rock song as, as he did Chisel in East.
0: Yeah,
1: Uh, where he took all these songs, you know, I mean, standing on the outside's like two minutes, 40 or something like that, some ridiculous amount of time, but it is a perfect amount of time. So I could see, I could see where he was at, but we're not in excess. That's all he talked about, but we're not in excess. We've got much more, sort of, respect in excess. We've got more depth down music and, um,
0: well, you're not pure pop.
1: We're not trying. Yeah, we're not trying to be a pop band. We're trying to be a classic rock band, and you know, classic rock is commercial. I mean, Guns N' Roses proved
0: that. Oh um, yeah.
1: You know, um, Foo Fighters have proved that. So I suppose. Um, a- anyway, it was done. Um, it was. It was a good experience, and and you know, anything you learn from, you know, you can, I could can be negative about the whole thing, or I can actually say so I did learn a lot from Mark Andridge And and I did.
0: Um, well, that's went, <laughs> what I was alluding to. Whether you took positives out of that experience working with him, being the big well, name, um, being the so-called big name that he is,
1: I've done enough. I've done enough recording to be able to to know what a producer can and can't do.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and I feel that um, you know, unless it's someone really, really, really qualified that I love, I can do it on my own. Bank can do it I'm oh
0: pretty we, much pretty much But
1: we, we we had a great producer in, in, in Sazzy with Sandy Canis yeah and, and you know, if anything he brought enthusiasm and, and, and excitement and um you know in the beginning I was like what's he doing with my songs and he's layering parts upon parts upon parts and I listened to the end result and I said well that, that's that's up there with Aerosmith, the recording techniques and, and, and the production and um yeah, and we've bought in the songs. I think Sandy edited one or two parts, but the majority of what the band is capable of producing is um, yeah, we know what we're doing. Yeah, and, and well, if to make that better, even better, if, you know, and that's what Sandy did.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what Phil's doing for you as well.
1: Exactly, and we did. We used Craig Portels um, for a single a couple of years ago.
0: Um, um, if I remember correctly, it was me suggested that you have a yak with Craig.
1: Probably, yeah, because yeah. you, you suggested Benny as well, and um, and Craig, Craig, he ended up being a mate, and um, he took a song in that uh, that the other chaps had r- written, um, and I was trying to edit it down a little more commercial length. Yeah, and and the band sort of backlash said, "Oh, you know, you you always have an opinion. Let us do it our way," and I. Yeah, but and since I took it in the crate, he did two big edits on the song, and it's exactly what i have been suggesting. And I went, I love this guy.
0: Yeah, well, you know, he hasn't worked with people like Billy Idol and You Terrence 2 Trent for Darby. nothing. Yeah,
1: you know, and Terence Trent Darby. Yeah. So, uh, so he, he, yeah, you know, his first edit was exactly what, what I was hoping. And yeah, when when a producer does it, the whole band listen. When, when when Dennis says it, they're all like, oh, stop dominating, you know. So uh, that yeah.
0: that's what and, and bands are like though isn't it? Yeah,
1: and um
0: especially if you're if you've been the main creative force, yeah, in the band, yeah. you know, you know, it's obvious that you're the most prolific writer in Love Child. Yeah, it's true. Um, well, you know, once well, I, I hate to admit it, but it's true. Well. You know, it just is that way. You've been writing a lot longer than the rest of them. You're a bit more prolific when it comes to writing. Um, you know, that is what it is. You know, um, geez, nobody ragged on Gary Kemp for being the only writer in Spandau Ballet. Yeah. Look,
1: you know, um, it, it comes down to studying music, and and, and I'll take them pretty much everything that I've loved from Joe Cocker to all the way to Zeppelin and that, and, and worked out what it is about a song that I love. And I've stolen their ideas, you know, I, I, I have not stolen the chord progressions, but I've still bought a harmony. Why I like the sound of a harmony, model, that that's coming from my gypsy background. Yeah. Um, and, and that's definitely part of the sound too, because, um, I, I know what I love and why I love it. And so I, I use it, and I probably have one style of writing too, like everyone else has, that, you know, occasionally you hear a song and go, what are they doing in that song? Why are they going up a major fourth? That doesn't make sense. And then it, it's ingrained, and, and you create something. You know, so I listen to a great Beatles song, find out what it is about it that's attracting me, and, and, and try to use it.
0: Yeah, well, that, that's just basically wearing your influences on your sleeve, Dennis.
1: Yeah, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, you know. I've told the band, oh, this song was influenced by this and this, and the guys go, oh, shit, I can hear that now. If you never tell me, I wouldn't have known. So I'm not telling you anymore, because then you'll start thinking that I'm stealing the song. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, people like Paul Stanley from Kiss is, also has a 17-piece soul band called Soul Station, and um, he admits in a podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt I've oh, got Gary Kemp's from Spandau Valley, Ballet, obviously, and now Nick Mason's saucer full of Secrets. And I think we all pretty much know who Guy Pratt is. And they've had this conversation with him where he's basically come out and said, well, you listen to the harmonies in a lot of our stuff, and when I wrote this stuff, I was actually thinking Four Tops Temptations when it came to the harmonies. So it's yeah. like... Then you go back and listen to stuff like Shandy, Shaw Knows Something, and even I Was Made for Loving You. Even though that was written with Desmond Child, it's still, oh, okay, I can really hear that now.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny when you mention those names, because if you don't go back and study some of that stuff, you're really losing, you're just missing a lot. And it's not intense study, it's just, seriously, any, any fool can get on YouTube these days, and there'll be a producer, saying, when I did this album, I use this technique. When I did this, I used that. And uh, you hear it enough times. And, and, you know, you start using it. You start using that terminology. Um, I mean, the most interesting thing that I saw on YouTube the other day was Journey. Remember that band, Journey?
0: Oh, I love them. Arnel Pineda's the best thing they ever did. Well, oh, that, that new guy. The Filipino. He's been with the band longer than Steve Perry was. Yeah, he's pretty good too. Um, oh, that, that guy can sing, man. Um, you want someone to sound like Steve Tyler? There's your man.
1: He met Steve Perry.
0: No, Steve Tyler. He can sing Aerosmith, right? That's he right. kicks it right out of the park, man. Yeah, well, um, and he can sing fucking Chicago, Dennis. He gets he nails the Peter Satira, hands down, better than Peter Satira did half the time.
1: Just get just sort just getting back to that point. I, I was never a huge fan of Journey. I just found him a bit, bit yeah, you know, too sweet. for my liking. Yeah. I and mean, just researching and watching some stuff on YouTube the other day, I realised that Steve Perry was a sand cook of rock. Yeah. And it just it just just hit home. I went. I get it. I actually get it now. The guy's fucking amazing. Well, I shouldn't swear. The guy's amazing.
0: I. Oh, you, um, you can swear all you want on the Odd Collective podcast. Okay.
1: I just thought the guy was amazing. Look
0: oh, yeah. Point. And Neil Sean. Oh, for
1: yeah.
0: Jonathan, Neil Sean and Jonathan Kane, for God's sake. Jimmy Barnes oh. would not have the solo career he has without the, the ilk different. of Jonathan Kane and Neil Sean. Isn't it
1: funny how um, how it all links up? I mean, you know, you, I, I think of Jonathan Kane as that keyboardist
0: in the babies. He was. And bad and, English.
1: And then he joined Journey. They did bad English. And, uh, he wrote all the Barnsley stuff.
0: Yeah, oh, well, you know, Don't Stop Believing would never have happened if Jonathan Kane had not joined Journey.
1: Yeah, so, uh, so getting back to my original thing, it's just just sort of studying, but you, it doesn't have to be intense study, it's like recreational. In yeah. you know, my spare time, I stick on one of these DVDs or, you know, issue things and there'll be Rick Pedo or one of those guys talking about the production of the song and what they've done here to make this drum sound better and you start panty drops and you think, well, I can use some of this information. It's there for free. It's there for me to take.
0: Oh, well, Rick, Rick Beto is one of the best at letting you know what was used on, you know, what mic was even on a drum.
1: Yeah, and it's funny how, how the more recording you do, the more you can actually hear which part of the room the drums are in.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah, uh,
1: and what sort of mic they were using, and, and that's stuff that I thought I'd never be able, I'd never have an interest in hearing, and never be able to hear. And then after a while, you, you know, maybe to the layman, it means nothing; they just hear the end product. But it's the sum of all things that makes it great, you know.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you could be producing other people now with the experience you have. I'd love to do that. Yeah, I could actually see you working in a studio environment producing. Younger rock bands. Uh, That's be something I like, but... oh, you know, you don't go anywhere that you don't like doing what you're doing, otherwise well, bit... it becomes too much of a chore. The
1: money's
0: there, you might. Yeah, well, money changes everything, as they would say. Oh, well, as Tom Brady said, it wasn't Cindy Lauper. Who was it? A guy called Tom Brady from a band called The Brains out of Atlanta, Rome, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Same town as B-52s, et cetera.
1: And the Black Crows.
0: And yeah, man, ready. There There's a whole lot of stuff came out, out of there. And, you know, um, that was one song that people used to tell me Prince wrote. And I said, no, I heard that from... The brains long before Cindy Lauper even touched it.
1: It's funny, it's funny you say. I think Roberto's from Atlanta, and um, I remember um, I had an opportunity to go, go to live there a couple of years ago, and I wish I'd done it to be honest with you. But um, I had all my work here. But uh, Atlanta's a, a, a place that's not talked about too often, which I think is um, probably a bit of an undiscovered gem. They don't talk about Nashville and Los Angeles. They used to talk about Los Angeles, but I think um. I think Atlanta
0: would be like a real melting pot. Yeah, Atlanta, Georgia's always had a really strong music scene. Um, Boston does. Austin, Texas. Uh, you know, it's never really been for mine and my experience of living there. Boston had a more <clears throat> um, appreciative scene than L.A. ever had and... You know anybody who thinks Nashville's full of country musos needs to go to Nashville.
1: I know. I know yeah, you
0: know, I... people like John Carabi from yeah. the the Scream, Motley Crue, etc., etc. Yeah, he lives in Nashville.
1: Yeah, I mean my daughter lives there.
0: Yeah, I know. And jeez, she has come a long, long way since 2014. What a performer she has turned out to be. Yeah, thanks,
1: mate. She's done me proud.
0: Yeah, well, she did Annalise Morrow proud in one night in 2014. That
1: was a great gig. That was a great night.
0: Yeah, it it was. And it showed a whole lot of people who your daughter was and, you know, that, yeah. I remember the look on your face that night when she did the Maybe Dolls Slash Numbers set. And, man, she kicked that out of the freaking park.
1: Yeah, that was a fun night. I remember we got up. I hadn't met the band yet. She's like, Dad, what are we going to do? She just turned out
0: Yeah.
1: Was, just just follow me, darling. You, you won't make a mistake. And if you do,
0: I'll fix it. You know, like, and she and didn't she... make one. no,
1: no i got to admit, the audience, the audience were just amazing. They were—they—they uh, they, they knew what was happening and least pulled out the night before and my daughter learned all these songs and, and, and the band didn't know each other and we all, I think i think it was uh, the guy from the radio that's his son on drums. Rick Turner. I think, I think a guy called Phil Hall on bass. Yep. And uh, we, we kicked ass and, and, and something about the crowd, they just let her know that they were on her side.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, that night, the star, the future stars actually shone. And Love Child kicked it out of the park that night, too.
1: Yeah, that was one of our first gigs, too.
0: Yeah, I know, and I'm glad to have been part of that one.
1: Yeah, thanks, mate. And we uh, ended up, I think I got up with you, my sex, and did a couple of songs as well.
0: Yeah, and there's video proof of that. Bugger it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then I had to play the back battle three in the morning. I was exhausted, mate.
0: Yeah, well, I think we all were. It was a very long, long weekend, that one.
1: Yeah, it was fun, bro.
0: Oh, yeah. And it did bring together a whole bunch of people that hadn't seen each other in years. And musically, it was, for me, a milestone. Yeah. Even, <laughs> even though I had to put something together to stop people arguing over who went first.
1: Yeah. Well, I... am. Um... I had a great time. I met a lot of musicians,
0: and that's the important thing. That's where I met Phil. Yeah, I know, mate. And, well, you know, that association, I can't wait to hear what comes out of that, to be quite honest. I'm more excited about hearing that than I am about hearing the final mix of my stuff. Oh, thanks, mate. We're
1: pretty close. It'll happen. Um, We'll all be back on track by the end of the year, I hope.
0: Yeah, well, uh, by the end of next week, I believe you'll have you'll be on one release.
1: Yeah, right. And which
0: song is that? Move on ups coming out. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Um, that's been a really weird experience for me. That particular song. Um, you know, it was the one that both. Uh, well, Phil was actually worried whether I was going to cut it or not. And actually, so was Murray Burns, who's producing the rest of it. And, you know, they both had said stuff that alluded to, they're not sure if I'm going to nail this. And literally, you've done the guitar parts and left. And I just knew I was going to nail it. And I said to Phil, this was the one that you doubted me in on. And I always knew that it was the one I was going to nail because I've been running around singing that since I was like a 12-year-old. Yeah, right. Um, if I'd have had a horn section in any of the bands I've ever been in, I would have done that, that particular song. Um, I always wanted to take ownership of it after the jam had done a version of it. Um, right. Um, It was really frenetic, and for mine and a few other people I've shared this story with sucked the life, sucked all the soul out of the song. And I just felt this inbuilt desire for many years to take ownership of that and show that a white boy could put the soul back into that song. And I don't think I would have achieved it without the soulful guitar that oh. you got out of it. Uh, that, that's not me pissing in your pocket. That's just how I honestly feel about how that turned out.
1: Give me a lot of credit for it, but I'll,
0: I'll take it. Well, you know, between you and Phil, um, being in a studio with you two is incredibly inspiring. Oh, thanks, mate. I appreciate that. And again, that's not to piss in your pocket. It does. Um, it's the three Sagittarians in a room thing.
1: Can you
0: can piss in my pocket. <laughs> oh, well, you know, that one, that actual song proved to me and a whole pile of people that I am actually singing better at 60 than I was at 18. There you go, mate.
1: You've got to keep
0: growing. Yeah, and I'm actually excited about making music again to the point where, you know, the next album's been started. Um, and I've asked you for a song. Started writing again myself, but at the moment everything sounds like a fucking Graham Parker song.
1: Oh, well, he he is the original sophisticated punk.
0: Yeah, well, he he put the soul into punk.
1: You know, when I was talking to Marco Pitts, I mean, he's called his book The Sophisticated Punk, and um, when I was talking to him, he was telling me about the Angels.
0: Yeah.
1: And he was in charge of their albums, and he heard Graham Parker. And he said, oh, listen to this guy, it's sophisticated punk. That's what you have to do. So that, that was quite a story.
0: Sophisticated punk. Yeah,
1: I, that, wonder what
0: Graham, I wonder what Graham would actually say about that description of him and the rumour. Yeah, I never
1: really heard of this punk.
0: Well, you know, they came out of... Graham Parker and the rumour came out of a band called Brinsley Schwartz. With Nick Lowe and Brinsley Schwartz. And he ended up in Graham Parker and the Rumour, and they were Brinsley Schwartz, uh, what England referred to as pub rock. So they weren't... He he wasn't punk by any stretch of the imagination. Um, The Stiff Records Association may have alluded to that to some, but, man, anybody who drops freaking horns on anything. You can't call punk. Yeah, that's I thought
1: maybe a punky attitude is what he's
0: getting at. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, that, that yeah. is definitely it. But I, I really can't see any angels th- being influenced at all by Graham Parker. Well,
1: that, that, that's the story. So I mean, you know, I don't hear the angels as a punk band either.
0: No, nah, no. Nah. They had punk overtones in some of the early stuff. But it, it, they just became a very sophisticated rock band, and that was inevitable because of Rick Brewster's classical training. Yeah,
1: that's
0: right. Um, um, yeah, it's just a story. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what this podcast is all about—the stories that we can tell about Australian rock and roll. And you know, it's part of the other
1: one was after they finished their first album. I don't know what it was, probably face to face or something like that. And then the second album. And they said remark, but we haven't written anything. and he took the tapes and he played in their songs backwards. And he went, Learn your songs backwards, and that'll be, and, and they did that. They, they listened to the songs backwards got some ideas and wrote the new stuff for, for the second oh, big album. Shit eh? Well
0: Yeah. I know. That's not kind of a weird one. That's, the, that's um I can't find the word for that and that's a rarity. <laughs> yeah, that's different. Very different.
1: Serendipity, that's that's what I'd call
0: it. Yeah, that that's the one. Um yeah, that that is a weird one. Listen to your shit backwards. But I have I have
1: by accident listened to music backwards and heard heard something totally different and gone, Oh, jeez besides the phrasing being all backwards, but just the melody, you go, Oh gee, that's cool.
0: Yeah, well, if you've listened to But You Don't Care or our version of it, it's got Batman, Batman Backwards on it in the riff. I mean, yeah, a
1: lot of people could say that when I listen to songs, I am backwards, so,
0: you know. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, well, that's all, all sorts of funny, that.
1: Yeah. Um, but all right, mate, we've got, I'm
0: going to go. Okay, Dennis, thank you for being with us on the Odd Collective radio show podcast. No worries, um, mate. We'll
1: uh, catch up soon.
0: Yeah, mate, here's to rockin' and rolling again very soon.
1: It's all right, buddy. have a good day.
0: You too, mate. Bye now.